I'm Kim Cutable, an author, producer, and entrepreneur. And I believe that the way women lead is our divine advantage. That's part of what we'll be talking about in this podcast called Voice Lessons. When Alana Ben-Ari first started her design thesis project about empathy, she had no idea it would become the first product in a multiple award-winning toy startup whose products, trainings, and workshops are now used in 49 countries around the world. The company she founded is called 21 Toys, and for the past seven years, she's been working at the intersection of design and social innovation. Alana believes that the power of play unlocks the skills critical to thriving as students and workers in an uncertain future. I'm Alana Benary. I'm the founder of 21 Toys, and this is a lesson on escalating dares. What is your earliest memory of being creative? Ooh, that's a very good question. <laughs> My earliest memory, um... I remember as a little kid, I was pretty obsessed with comics and obviously Calvin and Hobbes and some of the more classic ones, but uh, Farside. Right. Great. Comic, I was like kind of obsessed with. And so I would write my own comic strips and I would, I remember just finding some of my old comics that were so funny. So well, I thought they were funny. Which is funny. <laughs> yeah. um, I had one, Farside is pretty twisted. I remember I had a sketch of someone in like the doctor's office with like, this is, this could potentially be a bit morbid, but like they had like an ax in their head. Oh. And the doctor has a clipboard and goes, okay, tell me where it hurts. Right. Like that's the whole clip. Yeah. Um, but I had cheesier ones as well. I had a banana covered in jewelry and I called it spoiled fruit. <laughs> that's good. I love it. Were you showing them to your parents, to other people? Did you want to share them at that point? I don't think so. I think it was just like, I was just like a budding, like, yeah, maybe I'll be a Gary Larson one day. I grew up with a very, 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 very feminist mom who made sure that I had like a scrapbook of like female heroes growing up, me and my sister did. And that also extended to gender neutral toys and no Barbies. So you're in design school, designing a navigational aid for the blind. What was the moment it became a business? The way that thesis projects work is that you, in your last year of design school, so product design is what I studied, you're partnered with an organization and you're given a brief. So I was partnered with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, and the brief was to design a navigational aid for the visually impaired. And my joke is that the expectation was I was going to make a Blackberry with really big buttons. <laughs> the design thinking process starts with empathy. So I did empathic research and observation which translates to, I went to the library to read about visual impairment for maybe five minutes. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I need to talk to people. I spoke to at least over 30 people who were born with or developed visual impairment, but I also spoke to their friends and family. And that's when I started to gain some huge insights into the community. So what's it like to live with visual impairment, especially if you're a student or in elementary school or, or in, in junior or high school, and also the social and emotional gap between the visually impaired and the sighted community. I, through my own observations and conversations, 
and my own experience, I was like, there is such a disconnect. Like there really isn't a lot of opportunities for those communities to really interact. And then I met this girl who was eight years old named Emily. I followed her, went to her school and saw that she missed 30% of class time. She was taking this navigational training called orientation and mobility. The foundations of it are, where am I? Where am I going? How do I get there? And anyone going through visual impairment goes through orientation mobility. So I thought, this is the project. So after I discovered that, I revised the brief. So it was going to be a game. It eventually turned into a toy, but that the visually impaired students could play with their sighted classmates. Went from a student project to now, yeah, we're in like every major bank in Canada and like law firms are using it as well as design consultancies. We're in a number of MBA programs. But yeah, we're in 49 countries, thousands of schools, thousands of offices. At the heart of it, what I knew when I was designing it back in university and how I've now turned that into a business is that toys in general teach what textbooks can. After Connections won the best in show, you tried to sell it, but you couldn't. You said no company existed that was interested in developing a toy for empathy. So you started sneaking into educational conferences. That's pretty brave. Where did the idea for that strategy come from? That's what I called it when it was in university. So it's called the Connection Toy for Empathy and Creative Dialogue. So like not super easy to market. <laughs> and it might be different now, but when I graduated as a designer, I didn't feel like anyone in any of my professors and anyone in, when I went through that school were, were like, oh, you're creating a product and you should start a business. The idea was the dream scenario is as a designer that you come up with this amazing idea and you sell it to a business and you convince a business to make your idea, which is a whole other ridiculous conversation. And my joke is, yeah, luckily nobody was interested in starting an empathy toy company. <laughs> so what I decided was, okay, I'm going to just, you know, I designed the toy. I built the toy. Why can't I build a business? And I think I got just enough inspiration for meeting other design entrepreneurs both because I was so impressed with what they'd done, but I also was like, wait, you got to start a business? <laughs> like, so I can just, like, who told you could start a business? <laughs> and they said, well, no one told me. And I said, okay, I guess I can start a business. So I joked that it was like a series of escalating dares. So I just started telling people, like, I'm going to quit my design job as a lighting designer at the time. I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to start a toy company. I want to change education with toys. That was it. And I would just see their reactions to it. So... Once things started to really escalate more, I started getting prototypes made. I knew from day one that beyond trying to sell my toy to a business, um, and this was before I knew the statistics around women getting investment. So I didn't, I had a hunch, but I didn't know the actually really intense statistics that does not look good anyway. I thought there is nobody that's going to fund this. I'm not even going to try to get this, like convince an investor to invest in this. And also What's the value? Like, there's so many questions I had. I thought, you know what? I just need to prove to myself that there's even a market here. So the cheapest way that I can test that is I got a $1,200 artist grant. I made a bunch of prototypes. And I snuck into education conferences. And I left toys on the tables because I wanted to see, would teachers even want this? And I immediately saw teachers flock to the table and then say, whose is this? What is this? And I kind of turn the corner and say, oh, I forgot that there. And <laughs> we got into our first school board. So we got a, a five-figure order. It was our first ever order. I think all that resilience came from the fact that I've done a lot of like soul searching in it. Everyone in my family has an accent from somewhere else. So I've grown up with a lot of just resilient people 
who had to make do like you need to make five dollars look like five hundred dollars so yeah i think it was just that scrappy survival instinct of i'm gonna either volunteer and or sneak in (laughs) i love the concept of escalating dares how can you make this fun for yourself i've read this somewhere there's like a graphic of it a great designer you balance like humility and empathy and curiosity with like a little healthy dose of like arrogance or confidence where you're like, I want to get everyone's input. I want to like see what they think, but I'm also, I know what I like, I know what this is going to be. And like, you're not going to get it until you see it. And so I think where escalating dares fits into that is that's a huge task. That is a lot to do. And so if you think of it as like, this is just like a noble experiment, (laughs) you know, you can take it one step at a time and the path that you're supposed to go to will reveal itself. But if you don't look at it from a playful, creative, exciting way, you can you can get heartbroken really quick. You can have your idea shot down really quick. You can hear something that really throws you off. And so if I just say like, okay, well, it's just an experiment and I'm going to try it out and then see where it goes. Uh, my business has developed so organically. I didn't start 21 Toys thinking this is going to be a training and development toy company, but we would have never gotten to the idea that there's this training and workshops offerings in addition to the toys if we hadn't heard that from our community, if we found out all the different ways that they were using it, that we could then put that into our guidebooks. We have like 52 different ways to play. So many of those came from us being open-minded to the fact that we didn't know all the ways that it would work. And so we put it into the hands of teachers and leaders. So yeah, the idea of escalating dares just makes it so it it kind of puts that little bit of that creative spin on too. Don't know where it's going to go, but you also have a hunch. Risk is part of daring's DNA. Risk tolerance is among the most intensely studied traits in social science because it plays a role in predicting economic outcomes, of course, but social ones too, and personality. A massive new study of over a million people from 23andMe suggests that genetics make some people more willing to take risks. Research shows that environmental, demographic, and of course, cultural circumstances play a much more significant role in determining risk tolerance. For women, failure is Daring's fraternal twin. They look different, but they're definitely related because those who dare can fail. And when they do fail, women, 86% of them, according to studies, admit to being more cautious about their future daring. For example, studies have shown that women are so averse to failure that they don't apply for jobs unless they feel 100% qualified, whereas men will apply for jobs they feel 60% qualified for. According to one survey, the second greatest reason why women don't apply for jobs is because they don't want to put themselves in a position to fail. High-achieving women, in particular, derive less confidence from positive feedback than men of the same caliber, and negative feedback takes a greater emotional toll. From a cultural standpoint, when women are put in situations where they are aware of negative stereotypes about their gender, they become even more anxious about failing and proving those stereotypes right. So in business, that 
Leland dealing dude who's not that successful will just keep plowing onward getting better but many women who are even greater in their skill set will give up before they even try which is too bad because the thing about daring is it's never perfect so the failure toy is the toy you envisioned before the business was a business. And you even planned the launch party before the toy was finished, which turned into a whole series of learnings. Can you tell me about that journey? When I decided to start 21 Toys, I knew we would the empty toy would be the first in a series of toys. I didn't anticipate that the empathy toy would take us as far as it did on its own. But from day one, I know what the next seven toys are, and I know in what order. What I learned from the failure toy is pros and cons. I knew the failure toy needed to exist. I had no idea how it worked. I had no idea what it would look like. I just needed to exist. So I started telling people about it. And we had a thousand person waiting list of the failure toy when I tried to launch it about three years ago. And in my head, I was like, it's a failure toy. Can I launch it before it's done? And if I create a deadline that then forces it to be to be created, and I think I had the right intentions. So I was like, okay, clearly there's a need for this. There's a lot of excitement for it. The big misstep that I had was that I was running a business, and like I was like the CFO, CEO, CEO, financing it, bootstrapping, doing all those things, and then I thought that somehow just with a deadline, I would magically be able to create and invent something new between the hours of like midnight and 6 Mm -hmm. a.m. That was like the biggest learning for me, which was I needed to get the company to a place and have a a really amazing team where I could take, you know, multiple, not just two hours. I was like, I can just design it in two hour chunks. No, I need, I need multiple days because the best way to kill your creativity is to be bombarded with operation challenges every 15 minutes. So I needed to redesign my weeks to make space for for the toy. I really recommend that people calendar their blue sky time. Calendar your creativity. And yes, I know a lot of you are going to push back on that. Like, I can't schedule my creativity. And I'm like, yes, you can. Especially if you're running a business. It's part of your process and part of your creative discipline. You were given these gifts, and so you have to nurture them in a certain way. I love that you said, my passion for teaching failure has stemmed from the idea that in music and sport, failure is called practice. But for some reason, when it comes to our education system, we don't have another word for failure. Failure is this awful, terrifying F word to be avoided at all costs. The idea that especially in our education system. I do think things are changing a little. I think Carol, Carol Dweck's in Growth Mindset, Angela Duckworth talking about resilience. Like I'm not in an elementary school personally right now. So I do know that there are some amazing schools and teachers talking about failure. But at the same time, the system is designed to give you a sense that the worst thing you can do is make a mistake. But at the same time, we're saying, but you've got to practice and be resilient. And so it's very conflicting like feedback that we're giving this idea that we're not talking about what failure feels like we're all going to deal with it in different ways and also it's for sure going to come up at some point some of the avatars that i have in my head for the failure toy are not just students that get f's or adults that get a version the version of the f like i didn't get that job or i didn't get that opportunity 
but it's just as much for the A students. It's just as much for the overachievers who have figured it out and it's much risky, much more risky for them to change their, their course or their path because they have so much more to lose. My thinking and the reason why the failure toy exists is so that we can just start talking about all the nuances of what we feel like when we talk about failure and what does failure even mean? You know, failure can only exist if we have a definition of success. And that goalpost can move when you introduce competition, when you introduce new people, literally the context of the room you can feel like you're winning in one room and you're failing in another room. The spectrum of just human beings and how we respond to risk and competition and blame and all of those things, but also there's a spectrum to failure. So we have, you know, schools that I like to say practice failure abstinence. So instead of failure education, we're just not talking about it and just like hoping everybody figures it out. Whereas in like the startup world, we're saying fail fast, fail often that that can be completely tone deaf to the reality is that, yes, prototyping iteration, that's fantastic. That's really important for the design process. But when we're talking about fail fast, fail often in other contexts, it can actually be really dangerous and really disruptive. And we're ignoring the very real emotions that come with just killing a project, destroying a project with like take getting negative feedback. Like there's so much that, as far as I'm concerned, we need to be practicing failure 101, the wonderful world that is failure as a tool for innovation and design. Failure is simply the omission of required or expected action. It's not predictable, not boring. Failure can be a fluke. It's a pattern interrupt. And sometimes it can be downright miraculous. Case in point, like these inventions that were made by mistake. Penicillin, the slinky, post-it note, popsicles, the pacemaker, and my favorite color, mauve. Failure is not what you're looking for when you accept what is, but it will allow you to see. So what do you think is missing from the cultural conversation with respect to creative women and leadership? I think this is a moment in time where almost anyone can start a business, but starting a business and then running a business, maintaining a business is so different. There's so much that we can do if we, definitely as a woman, if I don't give up my power so easily, I really hold it. And I'm also able to ask for help and bring other people in and learn from them. As opposed to in the early days, one of the things that I removed my power uh, in the first two years of starting the business, I didn't call myself the entrepreneur contractors that like helped me with the wording in my business plan. And then would say like, I'm the business guy. You're just the designer. And I, I believe that at the time, even though I had started the business and was running the business. So often I would remove my own power. I'd say, oh, I just designed the products. Like I don't actually know how to run a business. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm also the business guy. So I, I think that there's so much that we can actually accomplish. And the biggest shift, I think the first step is just the mindset. Like you're allowed to start a business and you're allowed to have a successful business. There's a million obstacles in your way and it's important to be aware of those, but it's not impossible. And I think a lot of people just opt out of that even being an option because they have this idea of what a real business person is. 
I didn't necessarily think of myself as a quote-unquote woman until I moved to the United States, and then I felt a real shift in the way that women are perceived, which is why I'm actually all about claiming the femininity in this particular moment, because I do believe there's such a thing as feminine leadership, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I would want to be really mindful of how I use that. I, I'm not as familiar with the term, and I... I would say I kind of grew up with the in a household that it was more, I don't want to say gender neutral, but I think, yes, as society puts it, I think we can, we can say feminine leadership might be a way of wording it, but I would extend the fact that a lot of the spaces in social emotional learning can be held by, you know, any gender or anyone on, on that spectrum. It's more that we, what I, what I want to push back on is the idea that men can't do that, or that's not a value that necessarily men have. But I, I do think that now that just offices and in general environments are becoming just more diverse, it's more, what I would say is that you enter into some rooms that can show maybe more, yeah, mass, technically masculine traits. Uh, and I think the days of that are starting to really change. But where I would like it to be is that we're not saying this is really masculine, this is really feminine. This is just what like a healthy working environment is, regardless of like impressions, like this is the, the things that society puts on us. For me personally, it was really hard to claim the notion of femininity. I didn't want to be the girl, whatever that meant, because I was operating from my masculine. And there's actually really interesting research that shows that creative women and men tend to come in both masculine and feminine. They move really easily between poles. So for creatives, we kind of operate in both worlds, whereas the quote unquote normal woman is more feminine and the normal man is more masculine. It's different for creatives. Creative women in general tend to show up more masculine, probably because we're driving our ideas forward. So that's the first time I've, I've heard of that, but I, I would connect that to, in my experience, when people that start the creative process, the greatest creative thinkers, like it's all about divergent thinking. Innovation is about holding contradictions. So I would like to say as a toy designer, I live in the world of contradictions and friction and the idea that you're holding multiple truths at the same time and how they butt up against each other is where you get creativity. So. Yeah, so I would say, I think that's, I'm trying to formulate it like in the moment, but there's something really interesting there where it's, as opposed to it being like a binary conversation. And I do think there is, it is really important to call it like feminine energy and masculine energy, but the fact that we hold variations to that, I really believe the greatest creatives are the ones that can yeah hold multiple truths and multiple energies at the same time. And it's the friction that they create that leads to some like really, exciting inventions. Again, we're not afraid to say that something is feminine in terms of design. We'll label something more feminine or something more masculine. It's when it comes to human beings that it becomes loaded for so many reasons. But yes, you know, I really love the idea that it's the friction because we all have the feminine and masculine energy. But for the longest time, that feminine energy or what has been called feminine has not been celebrated or it's been celebrated in certain ways that are not actually representative of a lot of us in what we would personally define as being feminine. Designing a business is one of the most fascinating, exciting, interesting things to do. And I think the majority of designers that exist um, 
I don't know if they call themselves social entrepreneurs, but really true good designers, they search for the right problem. Our whole mantra is you don't jump into the solution and go, this is what everybody wants, and then sell and market it. You are constantly searching for the right problem. Really good design. That literally translates so beautifully into business that I just love to see more and more designers that start their own businesses and own that. Yeah, no, I believe designers will change the world. I really do believe that. And just because of what you said, that they are heart-centered, that they're looking for the right problem. And the other thing is that it's never uh, final, which is why most designers are crazy. Because <laughs> uh, you're never done. <laughs> but design is fluid because the world changes, products change, materials change. Like what you design today might not be right for tomorrow. And that's what is both exhilarating and fun and amazing about design. And it is also like, will make you like insane. <laughs> I do believe that creative process mirrors business. And I believe that the designer's ability to navigate change, to navigate failure, to be willing to try, to play, all of those things make them excellent business owners. They just do it differently. You can do it in your introverted, quiet, socially conscious, loving way. And you have to be prepared that some people will perceive you to be strange and you'll say, oh, well, then you'll realize, wait a second, I am actually, I know what I'm doing and I am the reason you're here. Yeah. Claiming that and being comfortable in that, like owning that, like, wait, I, I built this and I'm still building it and I'm allowed to be here because there's a lot that I grew up with, you know. I was in a feminist home, but I was still living in the world. And especially when you're bootstrapping, you're so much more vulnerable to people coming in and telling you you don't know what you're doing. And I'll take it from here. So those are some of the very difficult lessons I had to learn in the first few years. But that's also why I think it's so important. If, if I can, I really try to connect with other um, entrepreneurs, especially female entrepreneurs. Just that, that one piece of advice alone, say like you're allowed to be here and you, you know, that person is there because of you. They're not the ones that are running the show. So if I asked you to complete the sentence, my wish for every other woman is... To not apologize for, you know, who you are or what you're creating. I think we, at least for myself, I don't want to put that onto every everyone, but my own experience is that I'll have an idea and then I'll immediately apologize for having that idea because I'm kind <laughs> it's of... part of being Canadian, by the way. It's like built in. At six and I had the like the sorry orientation. <laughs> to not be apologetic. I think it's perfect. It's perfect. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. 
You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at Voice Lessons Podcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.